All right, so we're ready to begin our council work session for Tuesday, July the 17th. First topic is to discuss SUDOS standards for road design. Jason, are you gonna take the lead on this? I am. Hi, how are you? Good, Jason Hobble, city engineer. Um, I think just to kick things off here, I wanted to follow up. Um, obviously, we had discussed this initially at the March 29th, or May 29th, excuse me, work session where we had presented um, various parameters that we were looking at for um, design of future facilities and wanted to kind of give you an overview of what we were looking at for our recommendations as well as what those parameters really were referring to. Um, at that meeting, council had asked for kind of a comparison of the design manuals that are out there and so that's really what this table represents. Uh, full f for full disclosure, this table that I'm showing here is slightly different than the one I had given you. And really all I've done is there was a couple that were a little wordy. I've kind of shortened those up and condensed them really just for size to be able to actually read it uh, and read what's in front of you. So um, just a highlight of, of kind of what's here, it really is a comparison of kind of those items there on the left side, looking at lane width, curb offset, clear zone, edge zone, which again is kind of that same area there on the side of the roadway, curb radius, design speed, on-street parking, the parkway width for street trees, bike lane width, and sidewalks. And we're looking at a comparison of the what I would say is the four main design manuals that are out there or groups that uh, influence design of, of roadways. And that's AASHTO, which is the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Um, they're the ones that have the green book, so that's really historically where, what a lot of design has been based off of. Also, there's ITE, which is the Institute of Transportation Engineers, and the, the, desi the design guide that we had used from them was the Designing Walkable Urban Thoroughfares, uh, a context-sensitive approach. The, another manual is NACTO, and that's the National Association of City Transportation Officials, and we had used their Urban Street Design Guide. And then finally, SUDAS, which is the Statewide Urban Design and Specifications, their Design Guide. Um, so that's kind of a, a comparison of what's out there for those manuals. Um, I, I think you'll see what we've proposed is, is really in line with all of those, um, and I think Recently, those manuals have started to kind of head in the same direction for design. Um, but a couple of things that I did want to point out and just sort of stress before kind of turning it over to you for discussion of the various items. One is to, to I would strongly recommend that you allow for some flexibility in whatever we decide to move forward with. Um, obviously, no two roadways are the same. and. and I think we would all appreciate the ability to kind of have some leeway there on future facilities and, and deciding what we want those to be and how we specifically kind of allocate that right away. Um, again, I think in the future down the road when we, we look at um, those designs, I think that will be helpful. And I think a lot of these designs would encourage that. Um, the other thing is to not focus on narrowing everything up to the, not necessarily narrowing, but basically going right to the minimums for everything. Um, a lot of the design guides point to that as a recommendation that these are all kind of pieces of the puzzle. I, I think you're gonna wanna look at some of them, you may wanna say minimums, whether that's lane widths or um, buffer areas or, or um, 
clear zones, whatever those might be. And then maybe what you do is you look at, rather than going the minimum, you go a little wider or a little longer or whatever on some of the other ones. Uh, one example might be if you wanted to minimize um, lane widths and curb radius, you could do that. But then maybe you look at a, a wider buffer or a wider um, turn lane or something like that to allow for you know heavier vehicles or, or other items to to use that space so those are kind of the two things I just wanted to point out um, with that I will turn it over to you guys for discussion and certainly be here for for questions unless anybody has anything for me right now okay folks you have any questions for Jason well thank, thank you. you for putting this together sure. appreciate it could you explain a little bit more the concept of a clear zone and an edge zone, what that what that means? Yep, and for the various manuals, they, they look at it a little differently. Historically, clear zone, especially in the Asheville one, that's kind of the, the area, I would say kind of, it's from the travel way out. Um, so that may be from the edge line, it may be from the line that separates the travel lane and the bike lane, but it's basically that space that if a vehicle were to leave their lane, they would, um, the clear zone is that idea that that would be a clear area that if they leave their lane, they're not gonna hit something and, and cause a, an accident or a crash in that area. Um, I've kind of included edge zone here because some of the manuals refer it more as an edge zone and it would be the area that focuses more on having those things, having that area there along the back of curb for opening doors, or if you ha were to have a wide load and something may hang over a little bit over the edge line that you wouldn't have that restriction there. So they're not so much looking at it from the standpoint of vehicles leaving the road, but more just a clear area to kind of have that space that is gonna be used for multiple purposes. So Jason, in the clear zone, you're really looking at obstructions off the roadway where you're putting light poles, you're putting trees, planters, yep. things of that nature. You just want to make sure that if someone veers off that they're not immediately striking a light pole or a street tree that there's enough buffer there for them to regain and get back on the on the yeah, road. So I, I, exactly. So I, I think we're really looking at it as a way to kind of manage that area behind the curb to allow for certain things to be there but still have that area where if somebody does isn't paying attention and, and hits the curb and rides up on the curb a little bit they don't hit anything again it doesn't have to be you know 10 20 30 feet behind the back of curb but there's at least that recovery area that and it may not be you know speeds may be low enough that it's not necessarily a a severe accident or a severe crash where there's a major injury but there's still damage there's still maintenance repairs that would have to happen with those items so you're just kind of looking for that i guess that compromise to <clears throat> hopefully cut down on those incidents yeah i mean um i have a copy here of, of the walkable street design you know that was generated out of um des moines mpo and um you know they they go through the same comparison and uh, with both the curb offset and the clear zone um, with with the curb offset the ITE and NACTO viewed it as not applicable I think you know their concern is that it it increases the effective lane width uh, of of the curb lane basically to add the curb offset mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I'm looking at your, you know, we have a preferred and, a, and an allowed, and, and the curb offset does zero out. I mean, and we, we do know, um, I think one thing to keep in mind is the curb offset wouldn't even apply. If, if you have street parking or if you have a bike lane, it's not even a factor because you already are offset in both cases. So there wouldn't be the curb offset, correct? It's, mm -hmm. it's only in those cases where we have the curb or the, the curb up against the traffic the travel lane. travel immediately adjacent to the curb, right, correct. Right, um, I mean, it seems to me, I, I like, I'm really thankful and, you know, thank you guys for, for moving the needle on the, on the lane widths. You know, I think 10 and 11, in a sense, the 11 is the 10 plus, if we want to keep the curb offset, it's 10 plus one, so you end up at 11 feet. Sure. With respect to the curb offset, one thing I want to make sure to mention, and, and just for consideration, one thing we'll have to, to consider as well is that's also an area for stormwater, especially during heavier rain events. If you narrow up your, your lanes and you don't have that space there between the curb and the actual travel lane, potentially that would cut down on your travel, available travel area during heavy rain events. Um, one thing we could look at doing would be to stripe that area. So to actually have a, a lane stripe that would be at the, say it was 10 foot lanes with a, a one and a half foot offset. You would have a 10 foot lane and then you would have a lane line and then you would basically have a foot between that lane line and the curb and then the, the last five inch or uh, half a foot would be the actual curb. So that would be another option to, to co potentially compromise on that. But that would be the hesitation I would have, it, not only uh, stormwater but also snow storage. And you know, obviously when we do plow our streets, you kind of have that first pass to get the lanes open and then you come in and clean it up um, along the curbs and that kind of stuff. Right. I guess my concern is if, if, you, if we combine the curb offset with an 11 foot lane, then we're talking, we're back into freeway width. Yeah, and, and I think really what we were looking at with the lane width with the 11 foot width was really heavy vehicles or transit routes. Mm -hmm. I, I think those are really the ones you'll want to focus on for that 11 foot. So. I don't know that we would have to say 11 is what we're starting with. It, basically, we're saying we're starting with 10 and a foot and a half. So that's really where our starting point would be. Now, if we are having buses or heavy vehicles, then we would look at going to 11 foot lanes. Mm -hmm. So potentially you would have those, but again, 12. if we were to do that, I would I would feel more comfortable going to the the zero or, or no curb offset if we did have the 11 foot lanes. So you know, I think we could, Right. I, I guess those work together. my concern is, you know, if we exceed the 11 feet, then we're we're into that territory where we're we're incentivizing higher speeds, mm -hmm. higher than our whatever we set the speed limit at. So that that's where I'm, you know, and and I can, you know, again, I, I agree with you. I think having flexibility is is the way to go. Sure. Um, and in the end, you know, I, I think. Whatever these standards are, the key is going to be looking at what are the outcomes. You know that we're really carefully looking at what what speeds we're seeing, whether we find them acceptable. Um, you know where are the where are the collisions occurring? Doing an analysis of what factors might be contributing to where we have corridors or we high, have high collision rates. Um, that to me is ultimately, sure. I, I think we're all in agreement. We want to try to 
promote you know safety and comfort for everyone. Um, so I'm, my only concern is if you yeah you you add up some of these variables, you could end up with lanes that that could promote speeding. And what we could look at is having you know the the ten foot plus the one and a half foot be the starting point, and then you know. Deviating from that would require justification so that you're looking at those as a right. sort of a, a certain context versus that being what we start with. That that would certainly be an option. That's, yeah, I mean, the, the curb offset does double as a wider lane. I mean, that it, you are effectively increasing the lane width. So and I think that's where potentially striping it would be. Again, um, it, I mean, right. it's not a physical uh, barrier there, but it would at least be some sort of indication to try and right. keep people in that narrow area. Right. Well, we have that on North Dodge, as I recall. We have some some lines in the the curb lane, if I'm not mistaken. I don't. I think we do on Sunset and Benton, uh, Camp Cardinal. Cardinal does. Uh, we we do use Sunset, that on occasion. Yeah. Parking Camp Cardinal would be for bike lanes. Um, but I think what we would look at too is going narrower than those instances. Right. I, I like the idea, and, and I think this is really important, and I'm glad you started with it, Jason, is the need for flexibility. Because as you said, every every situation is different. And I think looking at, you know, what are our transit routes? Where do we tend to have the, the heavier trucks, larger vehicles, that sort of thing? Um, because, you know, when either even if we do or don't have bike lanes, and especially in places where maybe we don't have bike lanes, I think we want to be really careful that we're not going so narrow that there's no space for bikes, you know, and, and especially I, I would really hate to see us do anything that is like 20 feet curb to curb. I mean, I think that's getting so narrow you're giving no people any room for error without ending up on the curb or across the center uh, line. Unless you have a speed limit of about 15 or something like that, where it's the idea is to have shared lanes. But I, I, I take yeah. your point. I'm not trying and to so, disagree. Yeah, and, and so I, I really like the idea that, and, and I do, I think that curb offset combined with whatever flexibility we need on the lane width is important because I, I can't remember where I was just within the past week and a half and we were having basically a, a huge downpour and I mean the water's just not getting off the street fast enough and you're driving in pooled water and so if you don't have any space to get out of that then you can have I think you're more likely to have the accidents and stuff. Um, so I, I think that flexibility, I agree. I think, you know, we've improved from where we were when, like, we did Lower Muscatine with, like, 15-foot lanes or whatever. So I, I think this is a huge improvement. But I do, I think that flexibility, to have the professional staff have that flexibility as you're looking at the design and the usage of those roads. Um, the other things on here, I'm pretty much in agreement except the speed, the design speed and speed limit. And I think when you look at... Um, these others, you know, you look at Ashto, when they talk about collectors, they're talking 30 or higher. They're talking arterials 30 to 60. Obviously, you've got to have a pretty darn major arterial, and we're not going to have that in, within city limits that we're going to have 60 miles an hour. Um, you, you know, the ITE is anywhere from 25 to 35. The NACTO, they talk a 35 maximum, but they're up to 35. Um, and I find it interesting also either under SUDOS, they talk about their design speed is greater than or equal to the posted speed plus five miles right. an hour. Yeah. So they're giving, you know, some leeway there saying basically yeah. 
acknowledging the fact that people don't drive the speed limit oftentimes, and so making sure it's designed for a little higher speed than what than what it, it's posted. I've over the last few weeks, I've made an effort to kind of mention this to lots and lots of people as I've been out in the community, and I'll and I'll tell you, I have not come across a single person that believes we should have 25 mile an hour speed limits on most of our arterial streets. They get it for Jefferson, or excuse me, for Dodge and um, Dodge and Governor that are arterial, but also you've got curb cuts every. 50 or 100 feet with all those residential. And so when they think about and look at um, uh, McAllister from the car dealerships over to Old 218 is 45, from Old 218 to Sand Road is 35, and you tell them that the council is looking at making it 25 east of there, they look at me like we're all crazy. Um, you know, the same thing we talk about Foster Road or, or building out American Legion to city standards. What I am getting consistently from people is arterials are meant to get people in their cars from point A to point B in a reasonably efficient and, yes, safe manner. Um, you're talking about in general on arterial streets where you don't have a lot of curb cuts. We, and especially where we don't have the development right now, we can give a lot of thought to how many curb cuts we would allow and where we would allow them to promote that safety. Um, I'm really concerned about that we actually make things less safe if you start putting speed limits at a level that people are just not going to obey them. You're gonna have people, and I've seen this, people passing people where they're not supposed to be passing. Um, people are not going to obey it, so then are we in a situation where we're taking an incredibly expensive resource like the police and sending them out there to always be trying to enforce a speed limit, which does not make sense to the general public. So I think we need to have flexibility on the design speed and the posted limit. And I think depending on curb cuts and, and terrain issues and things like that, I think on an awful lot of our arterials, we should be looking at the 35. Along those same lines, one thing I would mention too, and I think um, you probably saw it in Kent's uh, memo regarding the Langenberg area, and we had met with those neighbors. One thing that they had brought up is if you were to have McAllister is 25 mile an hour and Langenberg is 25 mile an hour. I think there's some concerns from the neighborhood that people won't go further out of their way to use McAllister and instead would use, continue to use Langenberg. I suspect they're hypothesizing based on their past experience, sure. not knowing what the new neighborhood is going to look like and feel like. So we don't know what they would actually do any more than we know what we would actually do. Yeah, but common if we were sense tells you that if the speed limit's the same and the distance is longer, most people are not going to go a longer distance at the same speed limit. I mean, I, I, so I think they're. I think they've got a very reasonable hypothesis. No, we don't have proof, but I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. But we're putting stop signs, and there are some speed humps now on Langenberg, and I would think that you would choose to do the straightforward route rather than go that sideway on Langenberg. And and living on the west side, we have primarily only two major arterials, uh, Benton and Melrose, going east and west, and those are both 25. And in fact, for a large part of Benton, it's 20 because of the school district. And Melrose is. 35 into the university Only, club. no, it's 25 from the hospital to the point where, which people are well-known fact that uh, University Heights 
very closely monitors that. Right. It's a well-known fact. But then as soon as you get to the four-lane in Iowa City limits, it's it's 35, but that's the four-lane, not the two-lane. Outside the hospital and through University Heights, it is 25, and that's primarily Benton. And then Sunset is also 25, and that's a major north-south uh, route. And there, there had been difficulty on Teg Drive with speeders, and th they put speed humps in and lowered the speed, and folks do not cut through there any longer. Uh, they're very cautious on that. And, and all I can say is shame on those people. I'm sorry, but shame on those people who uh, hey, don't. Hey, hey. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry, Kingsley, but that the don't drive the speed limit, don't use their turn signals, don't maintain a safe distance, and, and hurrah to those that, that are safe drivers. And, and I just don't think we should uh, be basing our decisions on that because it, it's a safety issue. But a number of those arterials that you're mentioning also are the ones that have a high volume of or a high number of curb cuts. So when you talk about Melrose, you know, a, around the hospital and to University Heights, you've got driveways every 30 to 50 feet along there across from the hospital. Which is exactly why uh, you mentioned the uh, McAllister, uh, from, the car, from the car dealer up to the highway there, being high speed, there are there are very few curb cuts. There's the airport and there's farmland. There there's very little to interfere but, with. But it. my point, Pauline, is is what we have told staff so far is that every single every single collector and arterial is to be designed and built to a 25 mile an hour speed limit. That's I, the convert. No, let me finish. No, let me finish, please. That's the conversation we've had. So my point is. As just as Jason asked for us to give them flexibility, flexibility in design, exactly. I believe that we need to give them flexibility in the speed limits. And I think when we, just for example, when we design and look at the extension of McAllister in order to actually have that function as, as, a, as a good arterial street, I think we need to make it very clear to the property owners, no, both north and south of there, that there are going to be limited access points onto McAllister Boulevard. Just like we've said there's going to be limited access points onto Taft Avenue. I ride my bike, I'm on Scott Boulevard on the sidewalks, the wide trails. Cars are going on Scott Boulevard at 35 miles an hour very efficiently, very safely. I mean, I don't see any problem with that. I was driving on Mormon Trek the other day, 35 miles an hour. Um, you know, I don't see, again, I think you have to look at what is, what are the various conditions, and it, particularly as we build more arterial streets, if you want to actually move cars, and if you don't, you're just going to, people are not going to want to be in Iowa City. Um, we have to make sure that people can get from point A to point B in a reasonably efficient manner, and so we need to design the development on the sides of those arterials in a manner that limits their access to the arterials in, in a reasonable so way. So I think there's a legitimate debate about this, and it's interesting to hear you both articulate key elements of that debate. Uh, one thing I think about is something I've mentioned several times before in various meetings, is the interaction between street design, roadway design, and the land development, the, develop, uh, the design of the neighborhood in which the new roads would be embedded. So uh, it, when we talk about arterials, that's connected with a certain way of thinking about development, and that is that there should be collectors that feed traffic to arterials, and then on the arterials, people drive more rapidly 
and then those roads tend to get congested over time. Alternatively, a, a way of thinking about development is to have multiple often grid pattern development for neighborhoods so that there are multiple routes for getting from point A to point B, not just driving on a collector to uh, an arterial and then speeding along the arterial. Those are two very different images of how to do things. So it's the, the intersection of street uh, roadway design and land development design that I think about. So let, let me make another a few points here and just to respond to what you've put together for us, Jason. First of all, thank you for putting together the table. And if I read it correctly, it seems like staff is recommending a local standard that is pretty close to NACTO's, though I heard what you said about how it fits within each of the others, but the tendency, it looks to me like it's closer to NACTOs. And if, yeah, I can see you are yeah. not, not fully agreeing. Uh, well, I, I, yeah. I wouldn't say it's entirely NACTO, but no, I, I, would, say I would say that it's in line with a lot of what NACTO recommends. Yeah, so I think it's good. The tendency is good. I mean, I, I want to acknowledge that and thank you for, uh, you know, putting the table together and making uh, the preferred and allowed recommendation. I don't feel comfortable uh, trying to uh, make decisions about the details, you know, all the numbers in each of these um, matrix boxes. <laughs> this is not for, for me or Good you point. or I, you I to agree. do. Right. Uh, what I do feel comfortable in doing is being as clear as we can be about what our policy is so that you and other staff members can come up with the numbers that are consistent with the policy. And I think that does involve judgment and flexibility. I think it, it has to in the end. So I want to be clear about that. In, in terms of my own thinking about policy, I want to make sure that w the streets we design are safer by design and enhance a more walkable streetscape by design, and by walkable, I mean uh, a streetscape that one would want to be walking along instead of feeling that they're endangered in some fashion by cars going by or trucks going by at 35, 40, 45 miles an hour. Uh, now, I totally accept that there are exceptions and judgment needs to be applied. But, and so when I think about all this in relation to the area around Alexander Elementary, I think we have a great opportunity to develop a neighborhood and apply a set of roadway design standards that will be mutually reinforcing that the neighborhood and the roadway designs will enhance one another and create, in the end, create a more walkable, interesting, lively, and attractive neighborhood down there. So that's what I seek. And then I want to make one other point. Uh, the Peninsula neighborhood seems to be tremendously successful now. Its streets are very narrow. I don't know what the width of the roadway is, but I do know if cars are parking along one side, two cars cannot pass by one another. And that's by design. It's in, and the speed limit, I think, is 15 miles an hour out there. And it's because they want to make sure people can walk on the streets, they can ride their bikes on the street, and people can feel like it's their neighborhood instead of a place for cars to park and drive, full stop. So I, I, I think we just, that, that sort of is an indicator of the kind of neighborhood I personally have in mind. 
or at least a neighborhood in that general direction uh, for the Alexander uh, Elementary School neighborhood, and maybe for other parts of the city in the future. So I, I'm glad with, about what you've put together. Could I, I just I would echo uh, that. Let, let, me, let me just, um, on this question of design speed, I, I think the, the what, what is being proposed um, should be looking more at the alignment of the posted speed limit with the design standards. That, to me, is the issue. And uh, I, I think th that doesn't show up on the table, but that was the intent that the so, design so speed would match words, the posted. So in other words, <laughs> there are streets, and I think uh, Scott Boulevard is a good example, which is posted at 35. I'm not arguing. I would never argue that Scott Boulevard should be posted at 25. The, the issue that has come up on some of these newer roads, uh, why I've, I personally felt the 25 per hour speed limit was necessary was because of the integrated bike lanes in the roadway. That, that was the issue. Uh, if, if, if we're talking about a trail separate from the roadway, then that's a different scenario. That's a different road type. So, so the, I don't think we want to pr be proposing under design speed preferred and allowed. The, the speed is going to float. The actual speed limit is going to float. The, the issue is, are we aligning the design with the posted speed limit? And SUDIS says you, you actually design it to a speed five miles over the speed limit. That, that to me is an issue. But, but it does allow for them to be the same. It, it allows okay. for posted. What, what, but NACTO, NACTO is saying align them, don't, yep. right? So, so I think, I, Susan, I think we're the, the issue is not, um, you know, the, the the issue is not as as stated in this matrix. Okay. So, I feel better hearing what you're saying. Yeah. So, now so the 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 issue is again, we you know, if if we're introducing, if we're integrating bikes onto the street and that you know i looked at the new nacto standards and and it said if, if you if the speeds are over 25 you know they highly recommend a protected bike lane and on, in no instance were we recommending a protected bike lane if we were then again that's a different story you know the, the bicyclist is more protected therefore the speeds we, we could consider higher speeds. But, but in my view, one of the issues on Scott is, I mean, those are 15-foot lanes. So, the, you know, we're, we seem to, and we're, unfortunately, we're not doing an integrated bike lane on Scott. So, so we have a problem. We have 15-foot wide lanes, and I don't see any, you know, that, that's a difficult thing to remedy because it's 30 feet from curb to curb. And so we do have, in my view, issues that that generates where we have cross-traffic and where we are, you know, situations where if you're living in the Sunrise Village and you have a child trying to walk across the street to get maybe over to Mercer, that they've got to cross traffic, which could, because of the design standards, you could have speeds of easily 50 miles an hour on, on Scott Boulevard. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm wondering if other people have things to say. I didn't mean to cut you off, That's but right. make sure other people can speak as well. I just want to make a quick comment. Um, I appreciate all the data because I'm obviously not urban regional planning background, healthcare background, hence the safety of the speeds. But in, in relation to the speeds, I was wondering if we would ever take into consideration like law enforcement's opinion on that, on what they think would be a safe speed. 
and, and I can't speak for them. I mean, obviously, you're going to have the data that's out there. Right based speed versus severity of, of crashes. Um, I, I'm guessing that they would also want to make sure that we're not trying to force a speed lower than what people are actually going to right. just due to the need for enforcement or, or right. whatever that might be. So again, I, I can't speak for them, but I'm guessing those are two points that would come up. Two things, um, or at least three things. I would just like to leave it as is. I think that you did a wonderful job of trying to incorporate what our feedback was before. Um, to the relationship between, second, the relationship between speed and safety, I'm aware of a ton of studies that show that the lower the speed, the safer the street. I'm aware of no, no studies that says that that poses a risk. I mean, so that would be one of these questions. I don't dispute that they couldn't be out there, um, but if anyone does have any studies that suggest that slower speeds will increase the risk, I think we should, we should get those studies and, and um, talk about those. The third point is, in terms of the policy, the political issue, since at least I've been in council, we've received numer numerous requests to lower speeds through speed bumps, through traffic calming, um, through various methods. And in fact, relating to Scott Boulevard, actually there was a very robust exchange the other night on Facebook where we were actually talking about Scott Boulevard and a lot of people were complaining about how fast that is. And I know as a biker on Scott Boulevard, it's hard to cross in some, in some locations um, when you're trying to go over onto the northeast side. So at least the feedback I've gotten has been nearly just the opposite that you have. And that, that happens, that's politics, there's different constituencies. Um, so I'm pleased with what the staff has done. I would like to keep where we are. Um, and I think 25 is gonna get us where we need to go in terms of safe streets. I would just make one last comment. Jim, I appreciate your comments on road design, but it, I, I tend to look at those as neighborhood designs when you talk about the grid pattern so you can get someplace multiple ways. But you still have the issue that people have to get out of the neighborhoods and get to other parts of the community. And that takes arterial streets. It takes streets that, have, that can accommodate larger volumes of traffic. And again, to do it efficiently, um, you know, at, at somewhat higher speeds than the 20 to 25 miles an hour that, that we have in our, in our neighborhoods. I mean, I wouldn't want somebody driving my, down my street at 35 or 40 miles an hour. Um, so I, so I do think even if we do a better job of our street design within our neighborhoods with the kinds of grids, you're not gonna get people going from one side of town to the other where they have to hit a stop sign every two blocks as you, you know, alternate, you know, how you, how you do your traffic control with a, with a grid system. So I don't think we're ever gonna get away from arterial streets. I think that's whenever you have a, a vehicle-centric society, which we do, no matter how much we also want to make it walkable, we have a vehicle-centric society. And I think when you stop and talk to people who have to drive to and from work every day, um, have to drive for work every day, have to drive to and from their kids' school, their kids' activities, etc., it is very important for them to be able to get places in both a safe and relatively efficient manner. And so when you put all those different pieces together, I think we have to have arterial streets. I think they need to be well-designed, and I think we need to try and limit access points on them, and I think we need to have, in most cases, speed limits higher than 25 miles an hour. Sorry. Uh, uh, go ahead. 
So I'll just briefly say, you know, I think we should just put it to public measure, Eleanor. Just throw it out there for the public to decide. I mean, ultimately, I, I'm not sure. I'm living, I've been living in a different city. I, I've never seen people drive super fast speeds. I think there's been some calming areas around, like, the Horace Mann neighborhood that has drastically changed the traffic. I would say I drive on Scott Boulevard almost every single day. And I want, I mean, if you can tell me where the traffic is 45, I've been actively seeking that because I feel like people in Iowa City drive slow just in general. I mean, I think I just had this conversation about being upset how people are driving so slow. Uh, ultimately, I, I think I'm, I'm, I mean, all jokes aside in a sense, because I think I was really being serious. Um, I'm comfortable with uh, what you proposed, except again for the design speeds. I, I would agree with the kind of hybrid that Jim's talking about. I mean, ultimately I would agree that I'm not looking for you know neighborhood traffic to be 30 40 45 I think I do think that I mean it's, it's even less than 25 and so ultimately to Jim's point the street design um, should speak to the target speed and so if we're talking about a neighborhood and we're building a design or the street designs for a particular neighborhood I would expect I mean from a policy standpoint because I don't think we're gonna sit here and tell you what numbers should be or we shouldn't tell you what numbers should be um, but from a policy standpoint then that should be a slower speed and the street should be designed in that way I mean I, I, you can't go down friendship I, mean, I guess some people do but in that sense but when I say some people I mean me like you know at a, at a high a high, a high um, speed limit and so to that extent, you know, I would agree from an arterial standpoint. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Mormon Trek close to McDonald's when we're talking about Highway 1. I mean, that's not necessarily in the conversation, but those places I feel like need to be a certain speed to get traffic moving. Um, and I think, but I do think that, you know, the design will change. I think Mormon Trek with the changes that are being made, I don't necessarily agree with them, but the changes that are being made will slow down traffic without a change to a 25 mile an hour speed limit. So so I, I would agree with Jim as far as from a flexibility standpoint, if there was something we could do, assuming you're going to take these proposed guidelines, I hear from, you know, Jim and John that we can move maybe the, the NACTO over into the design, maybe I'm not hearing you right, maybe the NACTO guidance over into the design speed, or are you saying you're comfortable no, with what you I, see I, I said, when I look at the table, when I read it, I sense that the staff is making a recommendation that is more in line with NACTO than where we were before or where we are right now. And I think that's a good shift. That's what I was saying. Oh, okay. So to that extent, I mean, my proposal would be then, you know, maybe shifting the NACTO requirements um, over for design speed, because I do agree. I mean, street design, I think ultimately um, needs to speak to the target speed, and I think arterial streets are designed differently than um, streets uh, within neighborhoods, and the speed limits should speak to that. So that's what I would propose as far as, you know, any type of change I see with what you propose here today. One thing I would add, too, I think the way we envision this going is 35 mile an hour design for what this would be would be different than 35 mile an hour on Scott Boulevard. I mean, we're not going to end up with 15 foot lanes. So hopefully, instead of people going 35, they're going 36. Instead of right now, you know, where there may be 42. locations, yeah, 35 and they're going 42. So hopefully, it's just aligning those more with what we are posted for them to go. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I, I believe we want to see. Yeah, yeah. That, as I said, I think I hope I made that clear. Right, the, the, the design speed in my mind. Actually, I'm I've been advocating for less than 25 in many neighborhoods where where, where we can accomplish that, and I'm not 
I'm not uh, saying we shouldn't have 30 mile per hour, 35 mile per hour speeds, uh, but it has to be evaluated in the in this context of our, you know, do we have, are we accommodating bicycles on those streets, and if so, where? And all of those things have to factor into the speeds. And, and part of that too would be, you know, we show here a, a 10 foot lane or 10 foot sidewalk on one side on arterials that came out of the bicycle mass. So I, I think part of it is we're also providing better options for people, whether it's the 10 foot side uh, sidewalk or um, the buffered bike lanes. I, I think there's options for people depending on what they want to do. Um, so. I guess with that, it seems like maybe pushing the NACTO design speed over is the direction people are, are comfortable with, with obviously the posted speed and design speed being the same. Right. That, that to me is, okay. is what design speed, that particular criterion sure. is, is, is all about, is how is it tying posted speed with design speed? Sure. I would, I would just say, Kent, when you're doing traffic counts, please stop you know, counting my car. I feel like it skews the data too far, and then we have these conversations when we don't need to. How many times can your car be counted? A lot. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, even with the NACTO, I, I, I want to see staff have flexibility. I'm, and I have nothing in mind at the moment where we would have a new arterial that we would want speeds over 35. Um, but if for some reason we did, that it really is in the middle of nowhere and we're not trying to, particularly if we're not trying to accommodate bike traffic on there because we've got wide trails or whatever, I, I would want staff to have that kind of flexibility. Um, again, I, I don't necessarily see that happening in the near future, but, um, or at least I would want to have staff come back to us and say, hey, this, you know, we see reason to deviate from this. So. Uh, I'm reading the NACTO speed okay. box yep. uh, again. So I noticed the last line in it, it says 30 miles per hour max collector local. Yeah, so. I, I, I would probably propose that local would stay 25. That's what yeah. it, I, I, I think that makes too. sense to kind of go maybe 25, 30, 35. Yeah. I right. think they've got an idea where we're at. All right, thank you, Jason. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, we have probably five minutes or so. We could get into clarification of agenda items. So does anybody need clarification? That include the correspondence. What about correspondence? Does that include talking about that? Yeah. Five yeah. questions. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, under correspondence, the uh, 3F2, 1, 2, and 3, all three of them were letters regarding uh, transportation needs in Iowa City. And um, with all due respect to Councilwoman uh, Salee, um, the, her budget proposal for the transit system, I believed at the time that um, it's usually not wise to spend larger amounts of money on something without really thinking it through and knowing your exact needs, which is why I proposed um, that we have a consultant to come in. Um, to determine where exactly we need to improve our transportation options, uh, keeping in mind all the challenges and barriers. But uh, because of that and because of the correspondence, I did have a couple questions. One of the letters mentioned a timeline of two to three years, and I, I hope not. I hope that's not it, because I, I know for the last few years we've been talking about this is a need, so I would hope it wouldn't take that long. And secondly, would it include um, the SEATS transportation system? 
Um, two to three years, no, it would not Good. take two to three years. Uh, we're drafting the RFQ now. Uh, from there, we would want to get buy-in from the university in Coralville who have expressed an interest. We'd want you to see that RFQ to make sure we're, we're accurately describing the services that we want from an, a consultant. We'd have the consultant selection. Uh, ultimately, you would approve the contract, as would any other participating governments. So you're probably looking at fall, getting into early winter um, when we when we get through that piece of it. And then the best we can guess right now is a 12-month 12, 12 study. Um, it depends on how robust the public input is, and, and until we can really engage with a consultant, it, we don't know. But I'm guessing 12 months. And then uh, if, you, if you're going to talk about restructuring routes, that's not something you can do overnight. You have to plan for all that, and there's there's a, certainly a, a ramp up period, but two to three years seems excessive. The second question was on seats. Uh, we can look at different seat scenarios. Generally speaking, the seat service uh, area grows and shrinks with the fixed bus routes. So that's what the federal requirements are. We have to provide seat service to those same areas where we're provide, providing fixed uh, route service. And the hours would be the same. If we're going to provide fixed bus route hours on Sunday, we have to provide seat service on Sunday. So. Unless you want something different uh, from seats, you can just expect that it's going to mirror the fixed route um, system that we develop. Good, thank you. Relating to that point, I'm wondering though, we, we've, and I, and I would agree with you, Pauline, in terms of I would like to get the study first before we talk about committing potentially eight to $900,000 in terms of adding Sunday service. But that said, if there are some interim solutions, because I am very aware of the, the issues on Sundays, um, would it be worthwhile to do a work session to discuss some possible interim solutions um, relating to Sunday transportation? I mean, we have that transportation commission. Um, I would have liked to at least explore that, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, subsidizing taxis on Sunday or whatever. I'm just speaking off the top of my head, but I would like to get a work session on that. I know we have a lot of issues on their work session agenda, um, but I think that that would be um, very fruitful. It has been an issue that's been identified. Um, I think none of us are really opposed to the concept of Sunday bus service, but I think we have some concerns about the sticker shock prior to the study. What do people think about that in terms of a work session for some interim solutions? We could do that. I don't have any objection to putting it on our pending list. Uh, we used to have Sunday service, did we not? Uh, there, there was a, what was it, five years ago, Susan, that we changed? Or I don't think we've had Sunday service since no. I've been on So, council. well, we had a big no. debate anyhow about five years ago. Having I thought we did, seats. didn't we? And, uh, and the cost of Sunday service, I don't remember the details. It's too long ago now, but... I we did have the conversation. I do remember that. Conversation, but I don't believe we've had, we haven't, we haven't had, had Sunday it. service since no. I came on the council in 2010. Because we, we haven't cut it since I've been on. I know that. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. recall. I do remember some conversations well, about that. It would that, be helpful for us to know, have a summary of what our prior debate was, what decision we made, why we made it. There's like a cost estimate. I mean, I remember, yeah, for I sure. remember that piece. Yeah, so it was two, two contracts ago point. with the county when the cost the went up really high and we had to evaluate. Uh, there were some service level cuts. I, I don't recall exactly what those were, but... Yeah, sir, I do remember service level cuts and it because Correct. I got a lot of heat over that. 
Correct. It could be that we were operating some Sunday seat service. I don't think we've done fixed route done since fixed. I've for a long time on Sundays. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was referring to seats when oh, okay. I said that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do we have Sunday seats? Okay, I'm looking at the time. It's 20 till. We probably should stop there, I think, and come back if other people have. Well, was there? Was there? I was going to say that we get this for, for four or th oh, two, yeah. one more. Yeah, I'm comfortable. Is there four? Good idea. Oh, yeah, be with three. Having a, three. putting it on our yeah. pending list of work session yeah. topics. Well, I think Susan had even uh, mentioned it at one time. Maybe some taxi cab. Yeah, I hadn't it, mentioned work right. session, but no, no I, not when a work we go session, through but, the whole but that's a possibility. Thing, I, yeah. I think that's. Yeah. Could we, could we combine that with the review of the RFQ and, yeah, and yeah. we can have the discussion, this is okay for the study, and then items right. A, B, and C we can look at parallel with the study? Yeah. Right. And I'm hoping the advocates will reach out to us with some possible suggestions as well as we consider that particular issue. Okay. Uh, is there anything else anybody really needs to ask a question about concerning the agenda? Okay, if not, uh, let's adjourn our work session to after our formal meeting. Yeah. Turn to the information packet discussion. July 5 packet. We could begin there. IP2. A memo from Simon regarding the racial and socioeconomic review toolkit. Not to steal any of your thunder there, uh, Kingsley, but uh, thank you, Simon, for this uh, information. Um, I Stephanie. Oh, oh yeah, Steph well, Simon, so, yeah. via Stephanie, right, the information from Stephanie, right. Because um, Iowa City strives to be a welcoming, inclusive community for all persons with diverse backgrounds. And this memo just shows what our city departments and staff are doing or will be doing for Iowa City uh, to indeed advance. Uh, social justice and racial equity for our community. And so thank you to all those staff members for going through this process. Yeah, and Kingsley, you can take a little bit of credit for this. Well, I mean, I echo, I echo Pauline's comments. I mean, I'm excited to see the new departments, but ultimately uh, really excited to see the old departments coming back and sharing that information. So kudos to Stephanie, kudos to all the staff that are, you know, changing the practices. And it's not easy to do. And so, you know, as a, as a unique guinea pig in Iowa City, um, in Iowa as a whole, you know, great work. And I think, you know, when you first brought up this this racial socioeconomic toolkit, I think it was really hard for a lot of us, myself included, to really understand what it meant and kind of the nuts and bolts and practicality of of how it would benefit us and how you know, how it would be implemented and how it would be done. And and the more we get into this and see these memos and kind of get the nitty gritty of sure. what the departments are doing, it makes it much clearer, I think, to all of us, again, myself included, about what the benefit of this is and, and some of the changes it could mean in terms of practices. So um, thank you for bringing the idea back to us and pushing us to, to start doing it. I know it's certainly at times been a challenge for staff. You know, the police department at one point said they, in a way, wish they weren't the first guinea pig they were trying to do it with bringing a new chief on board and, and all kinds of other stuff. But um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of benefits from it. So, Anything else about the July 5 packet? Uh, okay, July 12. IP 16, the email from the DOT, the I-80 planning study, July 24th in Des Moines. I just wondered if anyone was planning to go to that. That's to all you, Pauline. Not me, <laughs> besides <Sorry>. me. 
Rockney? Nope. Don't worry, no thanks. Not in Des Moines. Jim? <laughs> no, 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 Kingsley can go. Maybe you can go with Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Terry, why don't you and Terry we'll especially appoint you? This is in Terry. Actually, oh, okay, that. just wondered <laughs> since we've expressed well. concerns about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't go, so. I, I won't be able to either. Okay, any other items on the July 12th packet? I appreciate the city manager's uh, IP7 in terms of some of the tax uh, programs that some cities and states have done, including Iowa, and made the list with the Apple project of just really needing to look at things differently in terms of trying to um, either entice companies here or just focus differently on smaller companies that that really do have the long-term benefits. There was one in there that really caught my eye that they put so much money into and it like lasted five years. Yeah, it was in North Carolina, I think. Yeah, Yeah. and so really, you know, making sure that when we're giving these companies these tax breaks and stuff that we really are, are getting a worthwhile benefit back for the tax dollars. So it was nice to see that. I have a, on IP6, the pending work session topics. Um, some months ago, I happened to kind of just by happenstance, uh, was watching a video on traffic safety that was. Uh, happenstance. Yeah, happenstance. <laughs> uh, That's what he does in his spare time. Yeah, right. That's right. You mean you're nightly. You're yeah, right. Get out a glass of wine. Yeah, you know. You know. Okay, so I was, I was watching a video on traffic safety from Ireland. And uh, it's weird. The speaker uh, brought up a professor at the University of Iowa, uh, Judy, Jody Plummert. Uh, she's a professor in the uh, School of Psychology, and he was referencing work, her work because she does research on the interface of child psychology, cognitive uh, development, and traffic safety. So that, I thought, my goodness, she's right, right here at home uh, being referenced in Europe. So I, I contacted Jody and uh, introduced myself and you know, she expressed my interest in, in this question of traffic safety. And so I met with her and one of her colleagues, and I was really intrigued with her work. Uh, I thought it would benefit not only council, but uh, the community to, to hear what she is doing in terms of her research. And I asked if she would be interested in, you know, making a you know, relatively short presentation at an upcoming work session. She said she would be happy to do that. So I, I wanted to um, bring this up with you to see if, if you would support bringing her uh, into this conversation we're having about traffic safety from the standpoint of her research into how children interface with, with road safety um, and the research that she's doing on that. I would support that. Yeah, I would too. We actually have a surprisingly short list of of work session topics, so we need to add to it. (laughs) (laughs) You're kidding. It can never be too short. Yeah. This seemed like a good night to bring it up because we had, you know, just been talking about the design standards, and uh, she does bring, I think, a um, you know a unique perspective because she's really been looking at at the experience. Of a you know a vulnerable segment of our population, namely children, in terms of, of how they experience uh, 
you know, being out on the street and, and interacting with, um, with traffic. She's also done work with bicycling as well, so. She would need some guidance about how long right. she should expect to speak because, you know, you're, if you're a professor, you're used to long things and short things, but you need to know. So what are you imagining? In terms of a time frame or? Yeah. I would think 20 minutes, probably, something like that. Sounds reasonable to me. This is one of your last decisions. I'm, I'm okay not making a decision on this one. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, could we add that? Yeah, I think there's an opportunity to combine it. One of your strategic plan items is to is for staff to do a comprehensive traffic analysis and look at crashes and then develop an action plan from that. And we're pretty close to having the accident data compiled and some initial recommendations forward. So we might be able to pair that, those two together on a single work session. I think that would go well together. Anything else on that information packet? All right, I'm not hearing anything else. So the last would be council updates on assigned boards, commissions, committees, and so on. So Pauline, may we start with you and move to the left? I don't have anything. Nope, nothing there. Um, I don't know if people saw, it was in the media, I think late last week, that the county has purchased property for the access right. center. Yep. So we are moving forward um, in terms of some of the subcommittees, um, pro forma and some things like that, trying to kind of firm up where we're going to start with services and the kind of staffing that we would need and, and the budget that would go along with that. Um, also working with attorneys um, both at the county and the university uh, to start with, and I'm sure we'll have Eleanor and her staff involved at some point as well with the 28E agreements and um, agreements between uh, coming up with a managing entity. We're exploring who that might be. I believe at least one of the articles indicated that it was going to be the University of Iowa Emergency Room, and that is not true. Um, they have declined. We are uh, looking at some other possible entities who would take on that management responsibility. So that's being done now. And um, But then the, the other agreements that need to be um, drafted, which have a lot to do with medical practice. And so uh, one of the attorneys over at the university is graciously, uh, I think, helping with some of that just because of his expertise. Um, and so obviously that'll be reviewed by the other pertinent attorneys um, that need to need to be involved with that. So really exciting. Uh, the property is down basically on Southgate. Um, some of the first work will be bringing in fill because it is within the 100-year floodplain. So we'll be raising that up to be at least one foot above the 100-year floodplain. Um, I threw out the idea of depending on the cost, maybe going even a little bit higher, um, just for safety's sake, so we'll, we'll be taking a look at that. But exciting that we are um, starting to get some concrete steps. So I'm glad it Also, uh, along with that, um, I was pleased to learn at the entities meeting, that joint entities meeting, that they've hired the, the director to kind of help coordinate all of these things. So And, and that, that person, Matt Miller, who's been hired, has only been hired um, through this process, he has we we don't have like a director of operations right. once it opens. Right. Okay. So he is just right. for the project to help part. get through the project. Uh, we, right. This 
we especially needed it after um, Jessica left. Right. Um, because she had been coordinating so much of the stuff. So when she, jail alternatives, Jessica. Peckover. Peckover, thank you. Blanking on that. So when Jessica Peckover left, um, we really needed a full-time staff person to help with that. So Matt Miller has been hired and um, is great to have somebody full-time to really do a lot of the coordinating, so it's important. John? Oh, sorry, nothing. 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 I, I wanted to add, because we'd gotten the memo. Oh, oh sorry. I'm sorry. Can I? <laughs> I just wanted to, it just was briefly touched on you, when you mentioned about the diversity in hiring women, about Latasha. Uh, I'd like to thank Ashley for her uh, guidance for the Senior Center in the interim, and then congratulations to Latasha uh, uh, to uh, being appointed to the position and look forward to working with her, because I am a member of the Senior Center and, and uh, hope to see it thrive. All right, I have, not, I have nothing. I think uh, that means we are done with our work session. Thank you, everybody.